series through the book of Revelation. Uh, So if you're visiting, we're up to Revelation 6 because we finished Revelation chapter 5 last week. Um, So we're going to work our way through the book over a period of only 13 weeks. Uh, So quite fast-paced, hence why the reading we had beforehand wasn't the entirety of the material that we'll be covering. Uh, Same for next week where we're covering a little bit over three chapters as well. Uh, But let's call upon God to help us as we uh, look at his word together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that every single page of your word is is for our good, revealing something more of who you are, who we are, and how we should rightly respond to you. There is no page where we should be embarrassed or ashamed about what it says about the details about you and your plan for human history. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to clearly understand your word this morning, uh, that you would help me to speak clearly, that you would keep my lips from saying things that are that are untrue or misleading. Uh, Lord, we just want to see something more of, of who you are and to behold your beauty, that we might worship you, that we might be so excited about the good news that you have entrusted to us, uh, that we might share it in a world which is uh, so drastically lost. Uh, so work in us, transform us to be more like your son, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is probably one of the most well-known warning signs, but also possibly one of the stupidest warning signs. Because a warning sign to be effective is to discourage somebody from doing something. But what we know is when you see this sign, what is the first thing you do when it says, caution, wet paint, do not touch? You touch it. And that kind of defeats the purpose of having a warning sign. If people don't do it, they do the opposite of what the warning sign says. What's the good of a warning sign if every single individual who sees it thinks, I don't believe it, I'm going to put it to the test for myself. As we look at the passage that we're studying through this morning, there are some very, very significant warning signs. And it would be foolish to think, well, I'm just going to wait and see if this actually does take place. Last week we looked at chapters 4 and 5, which were some of the grandest depictions of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And we saw two key truths we were reminded that if we want to see our world, our situation, ourselves rightly, we need to understand that God is reigning in heaven over everything. But not only did we come to understand and see that, we saw that awe and wonder naturally leads to worship. We so often think we want to have an intimate relationship with God and we find that sometimes it's tough. But where there is an awe and a wonder of who he is and what he is doing, it becomes natural. It becomes easy. But among some of the grand things that were said, Robbie, if you could put the control back to this one, there was also a moment of weeping and wailing. Let me just remind you back from chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written... Within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth 
or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seas, seven seals. We saw that this scroll contains God's plan for all of human history from creation to new creation. And John is weeping and he realizes that there's no one that says that is worthy to open. He's like, I'm not going to get a glimpse into this. And if it can't be opened, then it's never going to be set in motion. Then the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is presented as the one who is worthy because he has conquered by his death and resurrection. Not only granting him worthiness to open, but by his death and resurrection has set in motion the things that we're going to be looking at this morning. Today's passage, we see the Lamb, Jesus Christ, opening these seven seals. But before we unpack the passage, it's helpful to repeat something we covered in the introduction. People have various different approaches to the book of Revelation. Some people will look at Revelation chapter 6 and say, everything from chapter 6 to the end of chapter 19 only describes a period even far future to us, that would be a seven years of a great tribulation before the return of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned in the introduction and throughout our series, that's not my approach, and for a number of reasons. For example, Paul on 23 occasions speaks about tribulation in his letters. 21 of those 23 occasions are written about the present circumstances of those who he's writing to in the first century. John, the author of the book, in chapter 1, verse 9, calls himself a partner in the tribulation, a partner he then and there alongside with the first century churches that he's writing to. But not only that, John says this book will bring blessing to those who read it, to those who hear it, and those who do the things written within it. In other words, the author thought as he's writing to these seven churches in the first century, he expected it to be an immensely practical book for them there and then. It's very hard to obey something if 17 of the 22 chapters are thousands of years beyond the time in which you read it. He expected to have application to them then, and as we spoke about in the introduction, it addresses This period from 6-1 to the end of chapter 19, what the Bible calls the last days, which the Bible defines as being everything between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Very shortly, we're about to go into a great period of football grand finals. NRL and, and AFL, and I'm sure many of you will watch those events. And you'll notice that as you watch those events... You don't just get one camera angle through from the start of the game through to the end of it. And the book of Revelation isn't a sequence of history of things that go take place in this particular order. For example, in chapter 6 that we'll be looking at today, we actually see the final judgment described, yet there's a whole lot of revelation after this chapter. There is a retelling of the same period of history, these last days, but kind of like the camera angle idea, 
telling the same story of events from a different perspective, focusing on different things. Just like cameras at a sporting event, one might be just following the general play of the game, one might be behind the goalpost, one might be focusing on defence, all those sorts of things. So we'll see some repetition between this week and next week and some subsequent weeks as well. Now I need to acknowledge at this point in time, what I've just said for some people is going to sound like the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard either the church that you've grown up in or the books or things that you've read have kind of said the only way you can approach the Bible in a, any sort of respectful way is to say that this period is the seven years before Jesus returns. As I said, my thing I'm most uncomfortable with that is that John expected this to be immensely practical to those who he originally wrote to, that there'd be blessing to obey it. So what are we looking at this morning? If you were coming for an inspirational message, some of these headings might not be exactly what you were hoping for. Suffering sent from God. How long until God's justice will come? The final wrath of the Lamb. The question of who can stand in that wrath. And prayers for justice being satisfied. Suffering sent from God. I think even that title for some people is going to make some feel just really uncomfortable. Suffering from God? Isn't God good? Isn't God loving? Isn't God holy? Suffering from God? But if God is perfectly good and perfectly holy, perfectly just, then it is necessary that he is opposed to all things that are evil and hostile to him. To have a view of God without A view of his justice, his judgment, is a very skewed and wrong picture of who God is like. At the same time, we need to be very careful that we don't say that everything that we experience in this life by way of suffering is specifically God-sent judgment upon our lives. It's not a conclusion we should be making. And as Jesus opens these seals, in particular the first four which we see grouped together, we see suffering and death that comes and is commissioned from the very throne room of God down to the earth. In the first seal, in verses 1 and 2, we see a rider coming on a white horse who has come to conquer. And some will see this description of a white horse and presume that there's a white horse in Revelation chapter 19 where it's clearly Jesus and think, well, this must be Jesus as well. But there is some disconnect between those two things and we shouldn't be surprised when we see some things which look to some degree similar. There are many times throughout the book of Revelation where there is a satanic copy or or attempt at replicating and doing a lesser version of something that is equivalent of Christ. For example, this rider on the white horse in chapter 6 is one who has a bow as opposed to a sword coming out of its mouth. This writer here in Revelation chapter 6 is one who has to be given a crown. And ultimately, when we see these first four riders on the horsemen put together these first four seals open, all of them are broadly speaking about damage, suffering, death and destruction. So the idea of this conquering being the conquering of the gospel just doesn't seem to fit. 
The idea of conquering potentially then is, is bringing nation against nation to conquer one another, to bring war. Verses 3 and 4, as the second seal is open, we see one riding on a bright red horse. Notice with every single one of these horses, it's one of these living creatures, one of these angelic beings around the throne who says, come, and sends. And this one on the red horse is given permission to take peace from the earth. He is granted permission from the throne room of God to carry this out. That people would slay one another. Sometimes we look around, we see some horrific things happen in this world and we think, how on earth could any human being even possibly justify acting in that way? Potentially we've got some insight here from God of why some of these things happen is that this is something which God has permitted and allowed. This third seal in verses 5 and 6, rider on a black horse which is death and Hades. Sorry, not death and Hades was coming with a scale. Talking about a time of famine, the way it speaks of wheat and barley being six to ten times beyond the price which it normally is, which is what happens during a famine. But it didn't affect the wine and the oil. It was partial in its judgment. Then a fourth seal opened in verses 7 to 8, a rider on a pale horse, which is death and Hades who again was commissioned and called by the angel and was given authority and permission to kill up to one quarter of the earth. If you're looking for an inspirational sermon, you might be thinking, well, kind of still looking, this idea of God giving permission for someone to kill up to one quarter of the earth. All of these four seals as they open, each called by the angels to come, given authority from the throne room of heaven to carry out these things and all falling within this period of these last days, these times between Jesus' first coming and his second, affecting both Christians and unbelievers equally living upon the world. But is it really fair for me to say that these things, they seem so grand, surely they must be things that must be, we haven't seen anything like this, have we? To say this is characteristic, common characteristic of living in this life in which we live in this world? Let's see what, the, what our history, just some familiar cases, says about war, tyranny, famine and pestilence. World War I, 41 million were killed. World War II, 64 million were killed. It's calculated between 1870 and 2001 there were 3,168 conflicts talking the idea of of one man slaying another. Under Hitler, the estimates of six million Jews were killed under his reign. In Cambodia, under Pol Pot, two million out of the total ten million, that's one-fifth of the entire population of his own people, he killed. Joseph Stalin, estimates between 20 and 30 million of his own people. Famine, clearly the 17th century wasn't a good time. 1692 to 1694, 15% of the French population died of starvation. 1695, just after that, 20% of Estonia died from starvation. 
1696, 30% of the population of Finland died from starvation. And pestilence, which is disease, black death or the bubonic plague in the 14th century, here's a massive statistic. More than one quarter of the entirety of Asia and Europe died of the black plague. In the 15th century, as the Spaniards came to Mexico and brought smallpox, a population which was once 22 million when they arrived, within 60 years, was reduced to just 2 million through death because of smallpox. And Captain Cook, we always talk about Australia, Captain Cook went to Hawaii. And with his crew, they brought all sorts of disease to Hawaii, When they arrived, there was a population of roughly half a million, 500,000. Within 75 years, it was down to 70,000. It's quite clear you do not necessarily need to look to a time massively future to say before things of this sort of scale can take place. As we go from these four seals of judgment upon the earth, the fifth seal goes to a change where we see the picture of the martyrs in heaven who are asking this question, how long until justice will be done? If you've been in any extent uncomfortable with the idea of these things coming upon the earth, being called by these angelic beings, being given permission from the throne room of God, then these people who have died for their faithfulness to the word, for their faithfulness for bearing witness to that word, might change your perspective. Remember, the book of Revelation is key about John telling people who are suffering and willing, thinking about compromising their faith to remain faithful. These people had remained faithful to the word and to bearing witness, and they were killed for it. If there's anyone who you think might be inclined to think, speak poorly about God and his character, these would be the ones... Look at verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Just take a moment to think about what their perspective was. They had died for being faithful to God, to his word and to bearing witness. And they address him, sovereign Lord. They don't say, God, where were you when we, when we were being persecuted and we died? They say, you are the sovereign ruler. You are Lord. You're reigning over all. You are holy and true. Never once do they question his character. God, you can't say you're holy and good if this happened to us. They don't feel that any of these things or anything that we've described this morning impugns God's character in any way at all. If God is perfect, the ruler and owner of all, he must be opposed to things that are evil and opposed to him. The request they bring is like, how long until you bring justice upon those who killed us? How long must we wait until you avenge the blood that killed us? They've got absolute confidence that God's going to set it right. Remember the words that Paul says to the church in Rome, Beloved, never take vengeance for yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. Because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
We don't need to take justice into our hands. We're commanded not to take justice into our hands because God, who is perfectly just, will set everything right. We don't have to because we know that God will. In response to their question, these martyrs, and we see something of their experience beyond death, they're certainly conscious. We see them as as souls that haven't received their body, which they will with the resurrection. And they are given white robes, symbolising they are the victors, they are their purity, they have refined, and they've been told you must wait. Why hasn't God judged the entire earth? Well, specifically, the answer is given is because I have not carried out the full number of those who will die for my name. It's not going to happen until one more or one less than the exact number appointed by God who will die for the name of Jesus Christ. God's plans and purposes are continuing to unfold, which includes that unpopular reference in 1 Peter 4.19, those who suffer according to the will of God. So the delay is because the full number hasn't come in, but also the Bible speaks about God's delay in bringing out the fullness of judgment is because his patience with us is expected to bring repentance. As we see these, these four seals open up, we see the things that are inflicted upon the earth, just a small-scale taste of the judgment which is to come. Their intended purpose is for people to realise that we need to turn to God. Because there's coming a day when he won't withhold, when all who are set themselves against God will receive their punishment, which is described in the sixth seal of verses 12 to 19. Remember the type of book we're looking at? It is an apocalyptic writing, which means that it does use symbolism throughout the book. Not everything necessarily is going to happen concretely the way it is described. I don't think anyone's people expecting people to come or an individual on a particular coloured horse to bring famine into the world. Or even just to look at the passage we have before us, in verse 14 it says, every mountain will be removed. Then in verse 15 it says, they will run and hide in the caves of the mountains that have just been removed. But there is some familiar imagery in here. We have the sun darkened, the moon is blood. Speaking of that great and terrible day of the Lord spoken about in Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2. But there's a lot of similar languages Jesus speaks about his return. And in terms of the Bible, probably the biggest treatment of this topic about Jesus' return is Jesus' own words in Matthew 24 and 25. But the similar imagery he uses in verse 24, 29 to 31, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with heaven and with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Jesus speaks about a time when all will mourn. We see that same thing depicted in our passage in verses 15 and 7 which says the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rock and the mountains. 
calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? With what's described on this day, it's not really a shock that they would say, I would rather be crushed by the mountains than to endure this. That's not shocking. That just makes sense. What is the real shock in these verses? It says, And they saw him seated on the throne, and they recognised this wrath is coming from the Lamb, from Jesus Christ. So they know this is the one who is the ruler. They know this is Jesus Christ. Yet rather than bow down and repent, ask for forgiveness and worship, they are so set in their rebellion against him they would rather run, hide and call upon the rocks and mountains to crush them. What it speaks about here is universal. It says kings, generals, powerful, wealthy, everyone, rich or free, slave or free. In a world that pursues so much wealth and power, where it might hear, this comes to nothing. Wealth and power will do nothing. And they collectively ask the question, who can stand? Because to their mind, if the rich and the powerful and the kings and generals, if they're running, wishing they were crushed, who could stand? And in chapter 7, we see an interlude from the seals that answers that question of who can stand? Within these verses, it describes what appears to be two groups of 144,000 and of a great multitude. But it seems that these two groups are actually the same group of people, the community of God's people, in two different stages of life. Where the 144,000, speaking of God's people of all time, within the tribulation, receiving the seal of God, here is where we look at the great multitude, they are before the very throne of God, redeemed from the tribulation. Even in the tribes that are listed there in verses 1 to 8, it's not the traditional list of tribes. It is a list which is headed by the tribe of Judah, which, as you remember back to Genesis chapter 49, speaks about the scepter, the ruler from the tribe of Judah, who will belong the obedience of the nations. Now, I said uh, people have various different perspectives, and I'm sure there are some who've, who believe or have heard that this 144,000 are a selected number of Jews who, after, during that tribulation, who will be evangelized and they will come to faith. Which is quite speculative because nowhere in the Bible does it talk about this 144,000 ever being evangelized. Rather, an expression of the totality of God's people. Twelve tribes of Israel times the twelve apostles times a thousand in all of its grandness. These ones who receive the seal, these 144,000, are described as being these same people in Revelation chapter 14, who receive the seal of God and of the Lamb on their forehead. Now, if you lived in that ancient day, a seal marked two things. It marked authenticity and it marked 
ownership. Now, I don't know a single Christian who believes that Christians at some point in history will have the name Jesus Christ or God the Father tattooed on their head when it talks about a sign and a name written on their forehead. Biblically, to be sealed or marked as God's own is often with reference to the receiving of the Spirit. Remember in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, having believed you were sealed by the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, or Paul to the Corinthians says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So if you're ready for a spoiler or work for future weeks, the mark of the beast is the satanic counterfeit of this mark or this seal that God places upon those of his, recognising that they are his. I don't expect that anyone's going to have the number 666 tattooed on their forehead or have a microchip placed in their hands. But merely as a copy of what God has done to mark out his people, her way of saying, these are marked as mine. But to return to the question, who can stand? We've seen it's not the rich and powerful. It's not kings. It's not generals. And there's those who are marked and belong to Jesus Christ. Even though John heard the number of 144,000 of the tribes, verse 4, it says, verse 9, he turned and what he saw was the innumerable number from all tribes, tongues and nations. Dressed in white robes, worshipping around the throne. And one of the angels kind of cheekily asks, who are these in these white robes? And John's like, don't keep with me, son, you know. That's not a direct translation. And the angel said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How can anyone stand? They are marked by God as his children. How are they marked by God as his children? Because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. As Jesus Christ has died on a cross to bear the weight of our sin, has dealt with our guilt, shame, condemnation, that all who come to him in faith have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, have been given newness of life. Then it goes on to read in a way very similar to the description of Revelation 21, the new heavens and new earth. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The world we live in is filled with calamity. But take heart, there is an end and there's a good end. It doesn't have to be a fearful and dreadful ending. It can be a beautiful, everlasting, eternal end around the throne. So after that interlude, we get to the final and seventh seal and we think, oh, here's going to be a major climax. And we get to Revelation chapter 8, the seventh seal was opened and... There was 30 minutes of silence in heaven. That's a bit of a fizzer, isn't it? All this build up, get to the last 30 minutes, silence in heaven. But you'll see this idea of silence throughout the Bible. 
accompanying God's presence and his judgment. But the way in which judgment comes upon the entirety of the earth, the means might sound a little bit odd. Remember in previous weeks we saw how in the throne room there was this bowl that had the prayers of the saints. And we just heard about the prayers of those martyrs saying, how long until you you bring about justice? And it says, and this was poured out onto the earth. This prayers for justice have been satisfied as God brings an end to all things. So what? We covered a lot of material and I've probably raised a few questions and always happy to chat about any of those questions or bits that I might not have had time to discuss in detail. But it's an uncomfortable passage to read, isn't it? I don't think anyone has it embroidered and stuck up on their wall at home. But when I say it's an uncomfortable passage to read, it's not because I'm ashamed of anything that is described in it. Remember those who died for being faithful to God, to his word and to his witness? They speak of him as sovereign Lord, holy and true. It's uncomfortable for this reason. It reminds us all that the entirety of creation will be judged. That there are people that you and I walk amongst every single day whom these things that we've heard described this morning will be a reality. Doesn't that make you mourn for them? Doesn't that make you think, I have this news of what Jesus has done that rescues us out of that. Because as dreadful as it sounds, there is an escape. And it's not about you becoming good enough. It's about what God has done in Jesus to deal with the problem of our sin. The things that we see, judgment we've heard described is against sin, against rebellion, against God, which was paid in full by Jesus Christ on the cross on behalf of sinful mankind. That all who would call upon him in faith and turn from living for themselves to living for him would receive that mark of the Holy Spirit, be marked as his, would be washed in the blood of the Lamb and would have an everlasting eternity with him. To recognise we're dishonoured God would deserve death, but to say thank you that Jesus died on the cross in my place. Once for all, sin, guilt, condemnation, all gone. Marked and sealed as his own, guaranteed doesn't mean we're going to avoid all harm and hurt and suffering in this world but it can never take away what Christ has done in you it can never take you away from your your eternal reward it can never take you away from belonging to the one who is reigning on the throne here and now shortly we're about to share around the Lord's table and share in communion where we have a visible picture of Jesus' death and his resurrection. The bread representative of his body given on the cross for us. And the cup of his blood shed, which we've just seen, is the blood by which we have been washed and purified. It's a thing which we have mixed views upon. It's either upon the time when we reflect and we give thanks that God, 
you bore my punishment so I don't have to. But it's also a sign that if I haven't trusted in Jesus, that punishment is still mine to bear. And, and you don't have to. That's why the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. If you've never trusted Jesus, and there's something within you that says, I need this. And as we spend some time praying now, I want you to, to, to pray that to God. Just use your own words, just silently. It doesn't have to be out of your mouth, in your head. Say, God, forgive me that I've rebelled against you. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die for me. I want to live for you. I want you to help me. Thank you that you have given me your spirit to do that. So we're going to pray, but I'm going to leave a, a pause too if someone just wants to, uh, before I pray, uh, if someone just wants to, in the quietness of their heart, where they are, just to uh, either pray and give thanks to God for what Jesus has done um, or to ask for that to become effective for them today. So quiet moment of prayer, then I'll close us in prayer.